Mac Power Users, episode 714, Catching Up with John Syracuse. Hello and welcome back to Mac Power Users. My name is Stephen Hackett. I'm joined by my friend and yours, Mr. David Sparks. Hey, Stephen. How are you today? I'm good. Uh, I'm back on the show, but on vacation. So I'm uh, 11 stories above the Gulf of Mexico at a very fancy resort place with a bunch of my wife's family. So uh, if you hear a seagull fly by, that's that's what's going on. Yeah, and I think the audience should know that. I mean, because I, I offered to give Stephen the week off. I'm like, man, you've been out there helping cure cancer. Take the week off. And he's like, no, I want to be on the Mac Power Users. Yeah, want to come hang out. On vacation. I can tell you, if I was up there on the 11th floor, I, I'd be letting you take care of this one. <laughs> good for you. Good for uh, you, man. Yeah. So so on that note, uh, I do want to thank people for their uh, just incredible generosity. We closed our annual St. Jude fundraiser at $775,000, which is uh, about seventy grand above last year. Everyone told us we were going to be smaller than the year before, you know, tough times for a lot of people, but the Relay audience and, and, and the wider Apple community really stepped up this year. So a new high watermark that puts our total over the lifetime of the campaign at $2.98 million, which is an unbelievable amount of money. And so uh, thank you everyone who donated, who shared. Uh, of course, that extends to our guests today. Uh, the ATP guys really come through every year. Um, just an amazing month and, uh, being at the beach and having some time to reflect on it. It's just, it just is incredible. So thank you all who, who took part and, uh, I get some time off from planning, but just know the beginning of the year, you know, behind the scenes we're we'll be working on the next one. You know, with Daisy getting the full-time job at, at Disney, the health insurance is really awesome, but you know, what else is awesome is getting that email saying, Hey, we saw you made this contribution to St. Jude and we're going to go ahead and match that. And man, that's pretty nice. I guess really cool. We just got that email the other day. Yeah. So we got two Apple watches for St. Jude this year. We bought one and Mickey Mouse bought the other one. <laughs> we are joined by a very special guest today. Uh, if you are like me, uh, you spent uh, a lot of time uh, reading John's OS 10 reviews when he was doing those. And of course, listening to him on ATP and his other shows. Uh, so welcome back, John Syracuse. You won't hear any seagulls flying outside my room, but you may hear some construction equipment. So I apologize in advance for that. But yes, I'm happy to be here. Of course, the construction people decided to come back today at this exact moment because that's how podcasting works sometimes. <laughs> it's 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 so true. And it's not like road work is quiet, right? They got jackhammers and, and backhoes and all sorts of stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's real life. So that's all good. And, uh, and John, it's been too long. Last time you were on the show was episode 575, several years ago. A few things have happened over in Apple land since the last time you've been on. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to catching up with you. How long ago was that? 575? Let me look. Two years, I think. Two years, yeah. Well, I got to get back on a regular schedule here. <laughs> yeah. All right, every, every six months. Yeah, we're going to talk about your schedule here uh, in a little while. And... On more power users, which is the longer ad-free version of the show that we do each and every week, uh, we're going to talk about your your Mac Pro and what it, what its future may hold. Because you and I were computer twins for a little while, and then we've gone our separate ways. 
But first, let's let's catch up a little bit. We're going to have links in the show notes to your various podcasts and to hypercritical.co, your blog. But let's start with your uh, your Apple hardware. What are you, you using these days? Well, you've got them listed in interesting order here in the notes, but I'm going to uh, not follow this order and start with my Mac because that is the most important uh, piece of uh, Apple hardware for me, I think. Um, and it's still the same as it was last time we talked. I've got a 2019 Mac Pro, uh, the one that could take video cards, <laughs> the one with an <laughs> Intel processor. Obviously, it is, you know, uh, its life is prematurely shortened by the transition to Apple Silicon, but I'm still using it and it's still working fine. Eventually, Apple will stop supporting it and that will be a sad day. Uh, but for now, um, I'm chugging along with that. Uh, not many changes to that have taken place. Uh, I did take out what, my second video card uh, when I was debugging a problem, which maybe we'll talk about later. But other than that, um, oh, that actually, maybe last time we talked, I didn't have my the current video card. I have a uh, the uh, AMD Radeon Pro Vega 2 in there, which I got secondhand. Uh, so I didn't buy it at Apple's ridiculous uh, price that they sell that thing for. I had previously paid Apple's ridiculous price for the uh, Radeon W5700X or whatever that one is, also a, an AMD card. So expensive for that MPX module. I bought that at full price, and that was a lot. But, uh, you know, it was better than the stock card. And then I got the Vega 2 much cheaper. And the Vega 2 was only a little bit better than that, depending on what you're doing with it. But better is better. So anyway, uh, that's my Mac setup. Same monitor, ProDisplay XDR, same keyboard and mouse. On that, you're, you're using it. I mean, the reason for the video card, because you do a lot of gaming on your Mac, right? I try to. Yeah. How, how much time do you spend gaming on your Mac? Because I hear you talking about it, but I it's never really clear to me. Are you are you doing it daily or, or how no, often? My PlayStation you... gets the most gaming. A lot of it has to do with the fact that I usually have to reboot into Windows to do like serious gaming on this Mac. And, you know, rebooting is a pain. You don't want to do it. So the PlayStation gets the majority of my uh, gaming time. Although there are some decent Apple Arcade games that I occasionally, you know, check out on my Mac. And I play, try to play some legacy games. It's kind of fun playing a game like from, I don't know, the 90s or whatever that my current video card just laughs at. And the challenge is not, you know, getting the game to work well, because obviously it's trivial. They would, they would run perfectly on a phone. Um, the challenge is getting them to run at all. <laughs> on a modern Mac, you know, no more 32-bit support. Uh, they don't expect to be running in this type of environment, so I do spend a lot of time messing with that. And, of course, emulators and stuff. Like, I'll have a, a PlayStation 2 emulator that I'll play uh, a couple of levels from a classic PlayStation 2 game with the new, you know, higher-resolution interpolated stuff or new texture packs and stuff like that. So, you know, it's... Uh, my video card is probably either overkill for the gaming that I do on macOS whether that be Apple Arcade or Emulator or something like that, and not quite strong enough for the gaming I want to do in Windows because the Windows games will take all the GPU power you have in the world, and I provide as much as I possibly can, but sometimes it's just not enough, especially at 6K resolution. Like in, in Windows, the best I can usually do is 4K resolution, hmm. uh, either upscaled or windowed on my 6K screen, but yeah, no no video card that I have for this can... Or I've, nobody heard that period can really handle... 6k or 8k native resolution on the highest of high-end uh, pc games without really sacrificing frame rate and you know it's interesting because on you know apple's idea of a great monitor is one with a very high pixel count right where the the text is super crisp and a gamer's idea of a great monitor is a super high refresh rate you know not necessarily high pixel count 
that you're running uh, even this legacy stuff on uh, Pro Display XDR, which has very high resolution. Does that cause any problems for you? Yeah, it's not a gaming monitor. I mean, so there's two things. One, it's only 60 hertz refresh rate. So any frame rate over 60 hertz is wasted. So I can't even like say, oh, I'm just going to lower the resolution so I get 120 frames per second. That's pointless. I can't. My monitor refreshes at 60. Uh, The other thing is, yeah, gaming monitors in the PC world are not what we would call retina resolution. Like they're more interested. First of all, they're very often interested in a wide field of view. So they're really, really wide. And second, the, you know, the size of the pixels, the overall resolution is very low because you get more frame rates when you have fewer pixels to push around. So that's just the nature of the beast. This is not, this is not an ideal gaming setup, but you can get it done. So if you take a 4K, if I, if I can natively render the game at 4K or use DLSS or some other resolution enhancing technology to, to get 4Ks of pixels from the game and then scale that 4K up to fit the 6K screen by stretching it, still looks pretty good. iPad, I use my iPad a surprising amount uh, because I basically use it as a as the miniature bedroom TV that I can watch while my wife is going to sleep, <laughs> right? I could just be downstairs, but I can't have like the big speakers on and, you know, it's just more comfortable in the bed. So I do a lot of television watching in the bed. You know, as my wife's just sitting there, usually on her phone or iPad before she goes to bed, and then eventually she goes to bed and I'll keep the iPad on for a little bit longer to finish watching a show or whatever. And to that end, what I really want from my iPad is an OLED screen. Apple doesn't offer that yet, but when they do, boy, I'm going to jump on that. But for now, I have an 11-inch iPad Pro with an M1 uh, SoC in it. Uh, and it does everything that I need it to do. I don't want the bigger one. I don't need it to be very large. In fact, when I watch in bed, I watch without my glasses, which means the iPad's got to be kind of close to my face, close enough that Apple's little OS feature that complains about that would definitely complain if I ever enabled it. Uh, but I put it close to my face on a pillow so that I can see it without my glasses. Cause at the end of the day, it's nice not to have glasses or contacts in, you know what I mean? And just be able to see everything. And so 11 inches is the right size to fit my field of view when sitting on a pillow on my lap on the bed as I go to sleep. Uh, and I guess I do other things with it occasionally too, you know, web browsing research, you know, but it's mostly a video, a glorified, extremely expensive video watching device. And of course I, I take advantage of all the apps. The fact that I can get all of the streaming apps, from all the many streaming services I subscribe to. Those apps are all on the iPad, plus YouTube and all that stuff. So that's what I'm using for my iPad. That hasn't changed in a while, but like I said, as soon as that OLED iPad comes out, I am pouncing on that. Yeah, it's it's a bit weird because the 12.9-inch picked up the, is it mini-LED in the, yeah, in the big iPad? And it's only been on the 12.9-inch, and it's been refreshed a couple of times, and they haven't brought that to the 11 and it really feels like that's placeholder until they can get OLED there because man the, the if any, I mean if anyone's experienced a modern iPhone with OLED or another device with it the picture quality is so much better and I, I would imagine like you said you're, you're watching stuff in the evenings those those black levels would be really sweet yeah because yeah definitely I'm watching it in the dark and you just really see exactly how not black those blacks are when the <laughs> supposedly black screen is lighting up the dark bedroom yeah. Um, and mini LED, I'm not sure I would upgrade for that just because it's, you know, the, the number of zones they have and the amount of blooming they produce, I'd rather just wait for the real thing. Like the OLED mm-hmm. ones are coming. Uh, so I'm just sticking it out. That's why I was never tempted by the 12.9. Yeah. I like it because so many people come to the show and they're like, well, I just want the iPad to record my microphone and two apps at one time so I can podcast, or I want it to help me make big spreadsheets and 
John's like, well, I just want to watch better TV in bed. So that's right, it's it's a it's a tiny little TV that's close to my face, and also it's it's kind of you know people like do the oh the two screen experience where I'm watching TV but I'm also dorking around on my phone or on my iPad or whatever. I have the two screen experience on my iPad. If I'm watching a show that doesn't require a lot of attention, I'm you know doing slide over and pulling out Mastodon. Right, I'm flipping through a Slack and a slide over. I'm all about the slide over during boring parts of like shows that I'm not paying that much attention to, hmm. which. I pay, I mostly pay attention to everything I watch, but slide over is there and tempting. And I use it all the time. Even just slide over something like uh, slide over for find my to see where my daughter is. So I know I'm going to have to leave and go pick her up because often she's out late with friends and my wife is asleep and I have to figure out, you know, where she is and if she's reached her destination or when I have to leave to pick her up. So uh, two screen experience on one screen. Thanks to slide over. When it comes to accessories with the iPad, are you using a keyboard case, an Apple Pencil, uh, anything, or are you just sort of the, the the raw tablet? I've just got the regular, whatever the regular case is that you can turn into a little triangle to prop the thing up. Uh, I don't have a keyboard with it or anything like that. That's not how I use my iPad. I do have the Apple Pencil too, which I like. I so rarely use it, uh, but every once in a while I do. Every once in a while if I want to sketch something out to have like a, a hand drawing that I know I'm going to have to send digitally rather than doing it on a piece of paper and taking a picture of it. Hey, Apple pencils right there. I do like, I forget to attach to the side of the iPad. So the battery dies a lot, but yeah. the, the benefit is when I put it on my nightstand, it's like right on my nightstand next to the Apple pencil. Sometimes when I put it down just the right way, the pencil will leap up onto it thanks to the magnets. <laughs> and, and then when I go to pick it up, the, like the next time I pick it up, I'm like, oh, the pencil attached itself. And I just pull it off and it's charged. So that's my charging technique. <laughs> I like the idea that yeah. the pencil's like excited to see his buddy. It's like, hey, you're back. Yeah. You put it down a little bit too close to me. Zoop, there I am. <laughs> John, is it is it really magnets or are you using the force? Well, I wish, yeah. <laughs> you're the right age. Did, did you do that when you were a kid? Like when I was a kid, I was like, maybe I can actually use the force. Did you ever try to? Oh yeah, for sure. Like I was, that was a whole section of my life. Uh, I think I talked about it in Rectifs a while back of uh, discovering the parameters of the world, what things are possible, what things aren't. It was heartbreaking to find out that like, there's no Loch Ness monster or Bigfoot and I can't move things with my mind. Heartbreaking. (laughs) I haven't given up on any one of those yet. (laughs) Keep trying. Let me know how it works. Um, what, let's what see, about what's the, um, iPhone. What's iPhone, the iPhone? Yeah, for? so I'm on a every two year plan that is, uh, yes, as people would suspect, a holdover from back from the days when there were like two year contracts. And I just never stopped doing that just because uh, even though the Mac is the most important device, uh, my iPhone is with me the most, obviously. And I don't like the disturbance of change to my iPhone. I don't like the process of setting up a new iPhone. It used to be way worse than it is now, obviously. Um, and I don't like having to worry about all that stuff. I don't like dealing with carriers and, uh, and I kind of like, uh, the every two year cycle where my next phone will be, hopefully be, you know, better by a larger amount than if I got a phone every year. So I do kind of get those, you know, the big leaps. My wife and I are both on two year plans, but we are offset. So we always get the new phone. So for example, my wife has a 15 pro. So there's a 15 pro in a house. So I get to see it and use it and, you know, so I can talk about it on programs. But practically speaking, each of us only gets a new phone every two years. So I'm still using my 14 Pro, and it's fine. I, I celebrated the one-year anniversary by uh, taking off my case and putting on a new case, because when I was trying to find cases for it uh, back when I first got it, I ended up buying multiple cases, and I found two that I liked. They are leather cases, and the big feature of the case for me is that it does not have a covering on the bottom, because I don't like swiping up to unlock over the lip of a case. 
So my case has a bare bottom, kind of like the Apple Clear case does now. And like Apple's, all of Apple's cases used to have a bare bottom years ago, but Apple stopped doing that. So anyway, I, I removed my Ryan London leather case and now I'm using a bullstrap leather case. Both of these cases are practically identical. They're both black leather. Now I'm breaking in a new one, but it's nice to have a new case for the new year. Steven, we haven't checked in with you. What case are you using on your new phone? Uh, I picked up uh, a Nomad leather case and I've been I've been pretty happy with it. It is not bare bottom so it doesn't uh doesn't conform to to John's rules, but it is high quality. The, the buttons feel pretty good. The sleep wake button is textured, which I like, so you can kind of tell like which way the phone is without looking at yeah, it. Yeah, I saw that. I was, some people were recommending that case. It's got like stripes on it, like little lines in the metal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm uh I'm liking the Nomad. I think that's going to be my my long-term uh case this year. Yeah, I still don't have a case. I haven't picked one yet. I was going to get one of the Peak Design cases, but they don't have an action button. It's got a hole. Yeah, so they so I, I bought a Peak Design case because I have their mounts on all three of my bikes and like the tripod mount. Like I, I love their system, so I bought one. And yeah, they they basically they had a blog post or a Reddit post or something. Like we did a cutout because we weren't sure about the action button. And what they're doing is. They have a, a a replacement program they're going to be rolling out that you can either get like an insert that like goes in this in like the side of the case and will add a action button like a, a push button, or you can replace your case or they'll just give you credit if you're fine with it. So um, I will I haven't filled out the survey yet, but at some point I will do that and and receive a, a peak design case with an action button one way or the other. I think they've been pretty good with their communication. You know, I get it. Like you're trying to get a case out on day one and you're, you know, not that big of a company. Sometimes you're going to, you're going to get it wrong, but at least they're taking care of people. But I do like the peak design system. The case is a little bulky for what it is, but if you have a bunch of their little mounts and it's magnetic and a mechanical mount. So like when I put that thing down on the handlebars of one of my bikes, like it is not going to come off while I'm riding. Uh, it's it's securely attached to like the quad lock. There's a bunch of other products out there that attach uh, phone cases to various things. But I, I like their mechanism and I like the their aesthetic with the sort of the the cloth back that like feels nice unlike Apple's. Um, so I, I definitely still recommend Peak Design. Uh, you know, you just got to know there's a little bit of a hiccup this year, but they seem to be really transparent in their communication, which I appreciate. Yeah, I'll probably get that one at some time. Uh, which which case did your wife get, John? She has the fine woven, uh, the one that everyone uh, loves to hate. Uh, Jerry's still out on that. She just got it. Uh, she was upset that uh, she couldn't fit her USB-C cable through the hole in the bottom of the case because yeah. it does have a covered bottom with a hole, and we had some very thick connectors. Uh, and her and her hole's off-center. Those are two separate issues. The fact that it's off-center is just an aesthetic problem, but even if it was centered, her cable wouldn't fit. So she had to buy new cables. Um, I don't think she's super into how it feels she likes the look she got the mulberry colored one and that's one of her favorite colors uh she's away on vacation now so when she comes back i'll take a look at the case and see how it fared out there in the wilderness she is not careful with her devices so if this thing is going to wear out uh she will be the one to do it so i'm i'm keeping an eye on it but so far she's sticking with it well i'll we'll see if she uh stays with it for the long haul yeah i'd be tempted to take a dremel tool to it (laughs) just just make the hole a little bigger yeah, I mean, so I think the problem is that, like, if you make that hole any bigger, especially vertically, that the the part that's above it will be too thin and will break. You know what I mean? John, I hear you talking about 
all the things you do with your Mac. You're a developer. You you make your living with your Mac, and you know you make your podcasts and your apps. Uh, but I never really hear you talking about what you do with your phone. What what is the iPhone to you? I mean, I've got it on me all the time. Obviously, uh, practically speaking, uh, my iPhone is the way my uh, daughter tells me uh, where and when I have to pick her up. So I'm kind of a dad taxi service that has to be on call. Sure. Immediately, kind of like I don't know, like uh, like a doctor who needs to be on call in case it's an emergency. It's basically the same type of thing. Where if I don't respond within ten seconds, it's like, you know, I, I, I sometimes I tell her stories about uh, when I would uh, stay after school for some activity or sport, and then I would just sit at the school for potentially hours waiting for some parent to come and get me if they remembered to, with no way to contact them. I don't have a quarter for the payphone. And that was my only chance. And even if I did, I didn't know their work number and they probably weren't home yet. And so I just sit there and wait. Whereas if she texts me to come pick her up and I don't immediately respond and or if I if I dilly dally and don't get there the fastest possible way, like, you know, running to scramble the bombers on the runway with the engine already. Yeah. Running, uh, yeah. I get a second text saying, where are you? <laughs> uh, she doesn't appreciate my story. So anyway, there's, there's that. It's a communication device. My, my son's at school, so or at college, so he's not asking me to come pick him up a lot. So that, it's just down to one kid. But. Um, that's one main activity. Uh, I do most of my reading of Mastodon and other various social networks on my phone rather than on my Mac or on my iPad. So that happens. So if I'm, you know, sitting by myself eating breakfast, I'll probably be flipping through Mastodon or watching a YouTube video or something on my phone, you know, sort of propped up on the table, leaning against a little napkin holder or something. Um, and I check all my things on my phone, wherever I am, email, uh, messages, all the various services like if we look at the the amount of time I spend in apps, probably Ivory is my number one. But like my front page, like, uh, you know, Gmail messages, Ivory, Overcast. Uh, when I'm walking the dog, I'm listening to podcasts. That's all from Overcast, uh, Instagram, YouTube, Slack. Those are the main apps I'm using on my phone. Um, and I, you know, I use my phone like most other people do. And it's just uh, always with me. Uh, yeah, I guess, I guess as a podcast player is the, the, the probably the number of hours I spend, quote unquote, using my phone when I'm not not looking at it and sometimes not even holding it. For example, when I'm cooking dinner or cleaning up after dinner, the phone is in the other room, but I've just got my AirPods in, but I'm playing it from the phone, uh, you know, while I do stuff, right? Or while I walk around the house, if I'm cleaning, I kind of wish, this is why everyone likes the AirPods Pro. Like I kind of wish I had a noise canceling one so I could vacuum while listening to the podcast, but I have AirPods three and you can't do that. And I don't, I don't like the pros because they stick in my ear canals and I find it uncomfortable. Um, But maybe I'll eventually overcome that. But yeah, that's, that's what I'm using my phone for. I was actually using AirPods Pro with a leaf blower over the weekend. They are so good. I just can't get over. They yeah. just the little things, you know, they're, they're very impressive. Yeah, I should I should get a pair. Just use, just think of it like that. Think of it as like hearing protection for when doing noisy things outdoors or indoors. Mm-hmm. So you've got a couple of, of older kids and you said you and your wife are on the, the every other year plan. Do those phones get cycled down to the kids? Like what's your strategy there? Yep, they used to get cycled down to the kids ex- until my wife, until Pokemon Go came along. How many years ago was that? Like, I don't know, 2018, 19. I forget if it was before the pandemic or just before. But anyway, uh, my wife is super into Pokemon Go. And I, apparently, it is a useful thing to do to have multiple phones with multiple accounts on them. I kind of understand it because people have uh, multiple accounts in Destiny or multiple characters in a single account. I, I get, you know, why that's advantageous in the game world. But anyway, now she craves phones capable of playing Pokemon Go. And so she carries 
three iPhones with her at all times, sometimes four, because one of them is a work phone. Uh, and she's got her main phone, and then she's got two other phones that have to be capable. Then we should try we try to give the phones down to the kids, but occasionally she will intercept one and say, This is gonna be my Pokemon phone, so you don't get that. And practically speaking, the kids don't care that much about their phones. My daughter, I think, broke one of her phones or maybe got too old. Anyway, we bought her a 12. She got a new phone, not a hand-me-down. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason why she got a 12 back when the 12 was new, not a 12 Pro, just a plain old 12, was because my wife wanted the whatever the other hand-me-down phone was at that point. My son, I think, does have a hand-me-down phone. I figure which one he's using. Maybe it's the 10s. maybe it's 11 Pro. I, don't, I can't even keep track. We, we put them in, you know, the kids have them in such weird cases, like not kid cases really, but if you know my son, I just buy the case for him, and I get a big like a uh, a big bulky case that is gonna keep the phone from breaking. Not too big, but like what is that company called that makes the kind of uh, uh, protective box. cases? Yes, yeah. I think we get I think we yeah. get Otter, Otterbox yeah. room. And my daughter wanted a pretty case, so she just picked out a case that she likes. It's got sparkles and stuff on it. And that's that's her phone case. Um, but they're not really craving new phones. Like as long as their phones work, they're fine. And so. Uh, we have a fairly large collection of phones that just sort of rotate up to the attic. Like by the time they go get out of the Pokemon pool and get out of the kid pool, they're not really worth much as trade-ins. So they're just upstairs in the attic hanging out. <laughs> I have one more iPhone question though. I need to know if she is a Pokemon go user, she's also a battery user. What battery has satisfied the Syracuse criteria for an external battery for an iPhone? She used to like the Apple uh, battery cases, the ones that had like an internal lightning connector. There were like the little hunchback things. Uh, of course, Apple stopped making them a while ago in favor of the MagSafe battery thing, which she has. She has the MagSafe thing. But that, I mean, I think she likes that, but it's not sufficient for her needs. So basically, it has a series of uh, battery banks of increasingly ridiculous sizes, which is a big giant battery with a cable that comes out of it that she plugs her phones into. Uh, we have MagSafe charger mounts in all of our cars, so that helps a lot. So whenever she's commuting or driving to a Pokemon destination, her car is charging then. She also has a charging cable in her car. Uh, yeah, just a series of battery banks. I don't even know the brand of them, honestly. She just buys them for herself. She doesn't even consult me. Uh, <laughs> one of them did start swelling, and we had to bring that to the recycling center and say, please take this away because it's now, <laughs> you know. Yeah. But yeah, like the, she has, her biggest one is so big, like, I don't, it's, it's, I'm surprised it even fits any of, in any of her purses, but uh, that's that's what she does. I, I, she has a couple of smaller battery banks. I don't even know if she's even still using the Apple one. I, I don't really look into her purse, but there's a lot of stuff in there. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to do that. They get you in trouble. But the, mm-hmm. I love I love though how the Syracuse family goes hard at gaming. Like you've got a Mac Pro playing games on it, you know, and and she's got three phones playing Pokemon at the same time. Are your kids really into gaming too? I mean, my son. I wish he would still play Destiny with me. He played with me in in the very beginning, but kind of phased out of it. He's into Genshin Impact now, which is a similar type of game. Any type of game where you have chores, where like daily chores, Pokemon is like that. A lot of these games that are sort of like live games that want you to constantly engage with them have things that you can do every day uh, that are advantageous for you to do every day. And so Genshin Impact is like that. And he plays that even when he's at school. But I think he's doing basically the minimum amount of chores with a, a little bit of other stuff. Um he was super into Minecraft when he was younger. Uh, it's it's kind of like me where like there's one game that I'm always playing. I've been playing Destiny for 10 years. He's been playing Genshin Impact for maybe two years. He played Minecraft for many years. Daughter is not that into gaming, not for lack of trying. I tried so hard to get her into any possible kind of game. She occasionally plays like, a, uh, I don't know, like, ca- I'm not going to say casual games, like, 
uh, games that you can hop in and out of easily. Solitaire is an example, obviously. She plays, she'll occasionally play a game of Solitaire on her, uh, like a web version of Solitaire on her laptop at school when she's bored. Uh, she'll play, what is that one, like Subway Surfers or something, an iOS game where you're like, you're moving into a screen and hopping over things. Uh, ga- games like that, she'll play on her phone. That One of my daughters plays that. Yeah. Well, I think we've cracked it, guys. Syracuse gets a new Mac Pro every time he changes games. <laughs> well, we'll <laughs> see. Like, I'm, I'm gonna, you know, T- Destiny was created by Bungie as they announced when they announced the game. They said this is gonna be a 10 year game for us. Well, the 10 years is up, and Bungie says that Destiny will continue, but they're also making a new game, which is uh, not a reboot of Marathon, but it uses the Marathon name and universe to be a slightly different kind of game. So maybe I'll change to Marathon, or maybe Marathon will be a big flop, and I'll just keep playing Destiny. We'll see. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by One Password. Go to onepassword.com slash MPU and get 20% off. Have you ever wanted to have your cake and eat it too? Well, when it comes to one passwords, that's exactly what one password gets you. You just have to remember one password and yet you have a unique one password identity at every website you visit, protecting you and your family on the internet. One password is the one-stop solution for internet security. Do you need a sign in? They've got it. You need help with checkout? They've got that too. You want to protect your medical records or sensitive documents? They've got protection for that too. You get all of that in 1Password. On top of that, you get simple and secure sharing. You can set up a shared vault for easy family or team access, and you can share the passwords without putting them at risk on the internet. Even if the person doesn't use 1Password, you can still securely share it with them. One of the risks with passwords is it's not always on you. Maybe the company that you have securely entered a password with has been hacked and they haven't told you or you're not aware. 1Password has your back there too. They monitor and mitigate risks. They look at the companies that you deal with and they let you know if they've had a breach that you should know about and whether you need to change your password or even cancel your account. 1Password is a company completely devoted to your security and it's really good having someone like that at your back protecting you on the internet. They've got plans for personal, family, and business, so no matter what you need, you can get it from 1Password. Just go to onepassword.com slash MPU today and sign up. Both Steven and I use it. We're big fans. That URL one last time is onepassword.com slash MPU. And thanks 1Password for all of your support of the Mac Power Users. We recently did a episode on window management. And John, we owe you an apology because we did not talk about your app front and center. Um, we did talk about that in depth the, the last time you were on the show, but I, I want to touch on it here as well and talk about window management in general. I think listeners of, of your shows or people who have followed you will know that you have um, about a billion windows open at any given time. And, and I know they were giving you a hard time on ATP about it, but you like collect things in a window like a with a bunch of browser tabs as a project and then discard it when it's gone. So I, I understand it. Um, but for people who aren't familiar with front and center, uh, what's the pitch for that app? And it, it really sounds like it's something that you built to sort of scratch your own itch. I like to talk about kind of the ability to do that uh, as a developer. Yeah. So uh, window management, uh, when you did the show about it, it kind of, you know, I was giving you a hard time about it, but it makes sense that you talk about apps like Moom or uh, Divi or, rectangle or any all sorts of apps that 
uh, have kind of a graphical feature to it. It's like, we will take your windows and move them places. Do you want your window to be in a grid of, you know, three by two windows? Do you want this one to take up a third of the screen, the vertical half of the screen? Like, uh, those type of apps come to mind when you say window management app for the Mac. Um, but I would love to make an app like that someday because I have ideas for one that I would like, but unfortunately, macOS does not provide enough uh, access to the windowing system to do what I want, so I continue not to do it. So I don't use any of those apps, right? But the way I manage Windows is the way I have managed Windows since the dawn of the Mac. Um, and front and center is an application that I was essentially forced to write to continue to use Mac uh, Windows the way I am accustomed. Um, and so, you know, in, in my mind, just like when you think about how long and how important certain periods of time were, the time when you are a young child to becoming a teenager and an adult seems so long and important compared to the increasingly vast time after becoming an adult that seems less important. So for me, my formative years of Mac use, let's say 1984 to 2000, right, seems so incredibly important. Uh, but practically speaking, the time after that is now longer, right? Yeah. So, and it's just going to continue to go in that direction. Uh, but anyway, uh, my habits were formed on the original Mac. And one of the things the original original Mac did, once it finally got multitasking, as in the ability to run more than one app on the screen at the same time, was that when you click a window that belonged to another app, like it's, it's not, the window is not in the foreground, you just, you just click it to bring it to the foreground. Uh, the thing that comes to the foreground is not just that window, but every window belonging to that application. So if you're in uh, your web browser and you clicked on a text editor window, all the windows belonging to the text editor come to the front. Obviously, the one you clicked is the frontest most, but all the windows from the text editor come to be in front of all the windows from any other application, mm -hmm. right? Mac OS X changed that. Mac OS X, from the very first version, 10.0, if you clicked on a window, just the window that you clicked came to the foreground. Now, even in Mac OS X, if you clicked on a dock icon, uh, you know, the icon of an application in the dock, all the windows of the application came to the front. And Command Tab was similar. Um, but clicking on an individual window would just bring the window to the front. And that was a change for me. Uh, and obviously there are advantages to that technique. Uh, sometimes you do just want one, one window come to, the, come to the front and the ability to do that is important. But I wanted the default to be the behavior I was used to. Luckily, many developers were like me back in the dawn of Mac OS X and they made little system extension applications that would do this. And I always ran one. Uh, for the longest time, it was Drag Thing, which was an app that could give you a little pouts around the screen. And it had just a little obscure feature in the corner of Drag Thing that said, by the way, do you want the windows to behave like they did in classic Mac OS? If so, check this checkbox. Uh, but eventually, Drag Thing was retired. It didn't make the transition to, what is this? It didn't make it to 64-bit? I forget what it was. That, I think, that, I think that, so, yeah. Yeah, that didn't, made it not make the transition. Um, and that was like the last one of those apps that did that. And so I wrote front and center because I needed an app that provided this behavior on Mac OS 10. I'd had it for the entire history of, you know, Mac, Mac OS after Mac OS 10. And I had it for the whole history before, because that's just the way the OS worked. And I wanted to keep it. So I made front and center, which is an application. This is literally the only thing it does. It's a, it, you know, it just runs in your menu bar. You configure it once and never have to touch it. It doesn't move your windows around. It doesn't, doesn't do anything. It the only thing it does is, hey, when you click on a window to bring it to the front, should all the windows come to the front or just the one you clicked? And obviously, kind of like Drag Thing had a feature as well. Uh, you can choose which behavior you want to be the default. And then if you want the other behavior, you shift click the window. So for me, the default is all the windows come to the front. But if I just want one, I shift click it. Right. And then if you just reverse it, then you get the opposite. 
Uh, that's it. That's what Front and Center does. It's a tiny little app. It's on the Mac App Store. It's a cheap one-time purchase. I run it 24 hours a day, seven days a week, uh, all the time. It's just the way I use my Mac. And you would think that doesn't sound like a very impressive thing with having to do with window management, but it's fundamental to the way I work. I have so many windows open and the way I manage them is kind of the way you would manage piles of paper on a desk. You put them in piles and in areas. Okay, uh, you know, the, the bills that I haven't looked at are here and they have an outbox over here and this pile of things is, is for stuff that I haven't categorized yet. And I have a notepad in front of me and like, you just arrange stuff on the desk, right? I arrange things on my computer screen in piles. And the way I get at them is I arrange them so I can see like, oh, there's the corner of that window poking out. If I just want Chrome to come to the front, I will click the, the corner of any Chrome window that's poking out and I know they'll all come to the front. And then once they're in the front, I can quickly click the, the specific window that I wanted to come to the front, right? And if I'm working on a bunch of things at the same time, I don't need to divide my screen up into quarters or eighths or ninths so there's no overlapping. They can overlap as much as they want as long as there's enough of the windows sticking out to be big click targets for me. So I have sort of habits of where I arrange things. My web browsers start on the upper uh, left and tile down. Slack is in the middle. Uh, my terminal, my terminal, I have a big vertical terminal in the middle and two wider ones on the side. Uh, upper right is for, you know, like, well, right now Zoom is in the upper right because that's the corner for like podcasting stuff or whatever. Uh, lower left is audio hijack. I have a bunch of folders that are always open in the finder. I know where those windows are. So I find things on the screen based on their size, shape, and position. And I, re I remember where they are based on that. Like it's kind of like setting up, I, I keep giving analogies, but I don't know if people have experience with these things. A painter who arranges paints in their palette, uh, someone who has a workbench who arranges their tools around them when they're working on a project. If you're painting miniatures or building remote control cars or whatever, you have your little bin full of screws and you have your tools and you have your tape and your glue. And like, whatever task you're doing, you'll arrange your stuff around you, both the tools you need to do your task and the thing you're working on so that you know where everything is, right? And like the, the paints on the palette, you're not constantly looking at it and saying, now where was the green? What? You, you just get into a habit of, I always put my light colors here, my dark colors there, and then an hour into painting, you know where all, the, all of them are and you just get to them without thinking. So given that's how I, I manage windows, by just arranging them in space, and identifying and recognizing them by their size, shape, position, and appearance, being able to grab them, like using the entire, any exposed portion of the window as the click target, being able to grab them and have what I want happen is really important. And I do, do use that hierarchy of, if I can't see the window I want, just grab any corner of a window you know belongs to that app, then they'll all come to the front and then you can quickly see the window that you did want. So it's a two-step process instead of a one-step. But I find it that I can do that thoughtlessly and it's just the way my habits are you know, mm -hmm. the way, I, the way, the way I've habituated myself over many, many, many years. It's not for everybody. Everyone's got their own system, but I find it incredibly efficient and satisfying and doesn't require any setup or carefulness or thought. It's just kind of the same way I'm, someone might arrange a bunch of papers on their desk. Like they don't spend a while. Let me think of a system for doing this. Like if you just get a bunch of bills or if you're building a model, if you're, ma you're making Lego, there's a good example. You get the instruction book. Where are you, where are you going to put the instruction book? Where are you going to put your bag of ones that you're open? Are you going to dump them into like a little tray? Like you get a little system for yourself. And you just, you know, once you start doing it, you just go along with it. And then it's, you know, I, I imagine someone doing a Lego, you know, building a Lego model or whatever and saying, well, what if you could have like Lego expose or like tile the Legos? And it's like, no, I'll just, I'll put things where I want them to be. I know there's a small set of stuff I need and my drink is over here. My snacks are over here and I'll just do it. Uh, that's, that's the way I work on my Mac. You mentioned Moom and some of those other apps that we covered. And 
talked about how you have some specific ideas around that. Um, I am curious about developing uh, a Mac app to deal with window management. It seems like one of those things that Apple probably doesn't have amazing API support for, and they may, I know you've even talked about it, how things will break and, you know, it's, you're kind of around the edges already of what Apple wants developers to do. Has that been a challenge? Has it gotten harder over time? How is that landscape? It is a challenge and it has gotten hard over time. Like Apple does not want you to make these kind of applications. To give a great example, Stage Manager, which is on the Mac, um, and I think it's actually pretty good on the Mac. I think it actually works the best on the Mac of any of the platforms that it's on. Um, if Apple provided a decent APIs for window management, third parties could have made Stage Manager. But they don't. So third parties didn't, right? Apple did to, you know, to varying degrees of success. But like Stage Manager is just one idea of a way that you can have uh, a feature that helps with window management. It's a pretty good idea. It's a decent one. But if Apple provided APIs for doing that kind of thing, there would be so many awesome third-party apps because everybody's got a different idea of how to do that. Instead, we're stuck with Apple's ideas, which are like, you know, expose, mission control, spaces, although spaces used to work differently, uh, and stage manager. And it's just, and every few years they come out with a new idea and they just pile it on. I would love for there to be third-party APIs to do stuff like that. But not only are there not APIs, the for doing that, the APIs that do exist are basically historical relics. Like we're lucky they're still there just because they were introduced ages ago and Apple kind of, quote unquote, can't get rid of them because it'll break some app or whatever. And I live in fear of Apple finally removing the scant few, very limited, crappy APIs that I use to do this type of stuff. To give just one silly example, like in my, uh, I make another app called Switch Glass, which is an application switcher that, again, I used to use drag thing for. And I used to use the Mac OS uh, 8, I, I think it came out, 8, 8.5 application switcher. Uh, that went away and I had to write my own uh, thing for that. And not even in just in the functionality of the app, although that is fairly limited based on what I can do. Um, but in the settings dialog, I have a little part of the settings dialog that says, hey, where do you want the app switcher to be? And kind of like the dock used to be, you can position it on any screen edge and you can also pin it to the start or the end, right? So what I want to show is a little picture of your screen and then which is buttons where you can click the upper right corner or the middle of the right side, right? You know, little buttons that say, where do I want to position the thing? Like a little graphical thing. And I thought, wouldn't it be nice when I show that little rectangle that represents your screen, if I showed your actual desktop picture there, just so you know, hey, this is this is your monitor. Because by the way, in Switch Glass, you can have different preferences for every single attached monitor. So mm -hmm. if you had a different desktop background in every monitor, you would know which monitor am I adjusting the options for because it shows the, anyway, I, I wanted the desktop picture. Uh, the APIs for doing that are not great, super old, and either either deprecated or the their ability to function is continues to be limited basically i have to like wander over the window list and try to guess at what what unadorned window i think is a desktop based on its size oh boy and then i have to try to find a way to get the image and apple wants you to use the screen recording framework and i'm like i'm not going to ask for permission to record their screen just so i can show a picture of their desktop image in a dialogue right eventually that's probably going to go away eventually it's going to be like oh mac os 15 Sorry, you can't get the desktop uh, window anymore. You can't get, by the way, you can't get the image of any window in any other app. They're special casing the desktop because they think, well, oh, that's not so security conscious. Um, but they're probably going to close that hole because like, what if people have pictures of their kids and you're stealing pictures of their kids? <sighs> Just, anyway, I don't want to have to ask for screen recording permission. So when they do that, I'll remove that. But yeah, practically speaking, 
what can I do in response to someone clicking on a window? I have no idea anything about that window. I can't, people are like, can you have, just bring up a certain window for a certain application? There's an accessibility framework, a really old accessibility framework for trying to do that. But first you have to ask for accessibility permission. And you basically can't be on the Mac App Store if you want accessibility permission that lets you move or manipulate other windows. I've looked into this. You can, there are apps in the Mac App Store that I think ask for accessibility permission, but there's like, degrees of it like what can you do yeah um but yeah if you want to like full-fledged like move windows around and everything you can't be on the mac app store so that's a non-starter for me because i don't have a place to sell my things outside the mac app store and practically speaking those apis are ancient and weird to use and not great i did file a bunch of feedbacks this year it said hey apple here's a series of things that i think are reasonable to do like how about an api for me to just iterate over all the windows on the screen what are all the windows? What size are they? And which application owns them? I don't care what's in the windows. I don't need to see anything about that. Just, But just tell me where they are, who owns them, uh, and what sizes they all are. And you would think this is a simple task, but there are tons of windows. Like the, using the low-level window list API, you have no idea how many, quote-unquote, windows there are on your screen. Many of them are invisible. I know because my app Switch Glass uses invisible windows. You use them for like, oh, when I hit the screen edge, I want a thing to happen. Oh, there's an invisible window there that you don't know you're going over, right? Tons of Mac apps make invisible windows all over the place. If you can't tell that they're invisible or if they're they're indistinguishable from a hidden window, like if you do command H to hide an app, guess what? All the apps in that and that all the windows in that app are now invisible. Which ones of them are legit windows that are hidden versus invisible windows that the app uses for its internal purposes? Who knows? Have fun guessing. The API won't tell you. <laughs> so I filed a request for like. How about an API for give me the list of windows to iterate over them? And then how about an API for like pulling a window forward and pushing it back or anything like that? Just basic stuff would be really useful. Like a good modern API for doing these type of things. And yeah, it would probably require some kind of permission, but like it, your only choices are screen recording and accessibility and accessibility can't even be in the Mac app store. That's too big a hammer for this problem. No one's going to install a fun little utility app that can do it. That's why a lot of the, the best window, the quote unquote best window management apps are all outside the Mac App Store, just so they can do the maximum amount possible. And even that is incredibly limited. So again, um, I would like enough APIs for third parties to be able to make something like Stage Manager, because then we would see a real renaissance in window management uh, helper app thingies. Well, if they kill the screen recording access, a lot of utility apps are going away because that permission gets asked of me frequently as I test utility apps. I think it's just a thing a lot of people do. Yeah, and no, I don't think that that permit, that's a new permission. That's not going to go away. And in fact, they have a new framework for screen recording. But sometimes it's like you don't want to record the screen. You just want to be able to grab the image of a window. So, for example, mm -hmm. Stage Manager, when it shows like the little sideways windows on the left hand side. Those are little thumbnails of the actual windows. So to make those thumbnails, you have to have the image of the window some, at some point, you know, in your program, and then you can like slant it and whatever. You'd probably need screen recording permission to do that if you were a third party app. Setting aside the fact that you can't do what stage manager does, period. Like you just actually can't do it. Uh, if you could do it with APIs like that, you would need something like that. But I would, I don't know if that's the same as screen recording permission. Again, I'm not going to ask for screen recording permission to show a tiny thumbnail of the person's desktop picture in a dialog box, right? And that's my point. A lot of people aren't doing it because that's that's all they have. Yeah. And uh, yeah. it's, it's a, the new the new version of Bartender uh, has a feature uh, that requires that. And like in their UI and their settings, it's like, hey, you're going to see 
that Bartender 5 is capturing your screen. And they're doing it just to do this like overlay feature. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, I get Apple wanting to highlight when that happens, but it does put developers kind of in a weird spot because Apple's UI just says, this app is recording your screen. And that, to someone who doesn't know why that is happening the way that it is, like that's kind of a scary UI. And, you know, it, it makes, I think, some users uncomfortable. Yeah, and the name of it, screen recording, it makes sense because once you have the ability to grab an image of what's on the screen, you could record it. So it is accurate in that way. But try convincing a user that you are not recording it. Oh, I could record your screen, but I'm not. I'm just want to grab a picture of a slice of your desktop image so I can make a fake menu bar on top of it or something. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not actually recording your screen. And they would say, yeah, but you could record it, couldn't you? Yes, I could. But you have to trust that my app, Bartender, does not record everything you're doing on your screen and upload it to secret servers somewhere. Like, and this is a whole weird relationship, right? That's tough for Apple to figure out because I think there should be permissions for these things. But, you know, the window management apps that have to ask for accessibility, accessibility APIs can do so much. And it's like, I don't need to do everything that accessibility APIs can do. I just need to be able to see where all the windows are and move them. That's it. Let me do that. Heck, I don't even need to know. A lot of cases, I don't even need to know what's in those windows. Uh, just be, let me move and resize them and, and uh, iterate over them. Uh, and that's all I want. And the, the, the other thing that I would really want is, hey, if someone is dragging a window around, give me callbacks to control how that works so I can implement my own window snapping, my own sort of guides for windows and stuff like that. Again, you know, this that wouldn't require knowing the contents of the windows. It's just a rectangle. As far as the API is concerned, I would just have to know, this is a window, It's this. it's these dimensions, it's in this layer, it's owned by this application. Uh, and it's being dragged from position X to position Y. And what do you want me to do about it? Uh, do you want it to snap to this position? Do you want me to draw a guide here? Uh, you know, that type of stuff. So, so John, if, if Tim Cook calls you tomorrow and says, John, I heard you on Mac Power Users, because I, I think he listens to every show religiously. Mm-hmm. While he's working out, have you seen those guns? But the, uh, he says, uh, why don't you come in for a week and fix this problem? What do you do? I mean, first I would point him to all my uh, feedback numbers, FB this, FB that. Uh, here, <laughs> okay. I already put in sort of formal requests for the features that I want. Um, but yeah, it's a tough sell. Like, you know, is this an important thing for us to implement in macOS? Doing anything in macOS is a tough sell inside Apple these days. But I, what I would say is like, hey, you spend a lot of time making Stage Manager. A bunch of people made that feature. You you marketed it. Uh, you continue to develop it and improve it and fix bugs in it, hopefully. Um, I get that you want to provide a way like a built-in way in the operating system to help users manage windows that's what full screen mode is about that's what spaces is about like this you know apple does that it's part of the operating system right but i what i would say to try to sell this to upper management would be look at the parts of the operating system where you have a solution but it's built on top of uh an open database uh so look at calendars for example uh, you know every apple platform comes with a calendar app and calendars are essential to the the operating system. But that calendar database has a public API and third parties can make calendar apps that work with it. And that has resulted in an amazing ecosystem of calendar apps for all of Apple's platforms where they're all using the same underlying calendar database, but they, and Apple ships a good one that you can use, but if you want different things, there are lots of third party choices, right? Should be the same way with window management. Do something good in the operating system, but build it on top of an open system that third parties can also build on. There's lots of, the Apple Photo Library, the Apple Music Library, there are varying degrees of success of how much 
the first party app is dominant over third party ones. But in every case where Apple has chosen to provide a solution on top of an open platform, third parties have come in and built on that platform and to the benefit of the overall platform. So it doesn't mean sacrificing out of the box functionality. It just means, you know, taking advantage of the ecosystem to so that Apple doesn't have to come up with every single good idea on its own. Yeah, I'd, I'd love it. I mean, I, I feel like you're right. Third-party developers will take what Apple's done and they'll make better, more intense versions. And for most users, they'll never care. But for power users, they're going to, they would love it. And uh, I just don't know if it's going to happen. Or not. If they do that, though, are, are we getting a, a commitment now that you're going to make an app? We just need that, right? I, I was, I'll definitely try. I mean, if some much uh, more experienced Mac developer beats me to the punch with exactly what I want, then yeah, I don't have to make the app. But if no one else does, like I'm I'm a, a Mac developer by necessity. Uh, if no one else is going to make this app, I have to make yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> well, those are the best apps, right? The ones you make to scratch your own itch. That's what people say. It's fun to make them. I'm not sure they're the best apps, but they're certainly the most fun to make. And you can definitely feel it when it happens. But the downside is uh, those apps do not appeal to people who don't think like you. <laughs> do, do you with your management system you know where you've kind of you've got stuff over the desk and you've kind of got a geographic memory of those kinds of things are in this corner and that corner and now you've got the big screen you've got a 6k monitor um what how often do you you know what do you do when the thing you want isn't in clickable space like you know you need to be able to click on the window are they always available i mean don't you run into conflicts where they're behind each other yeah, no, they're totally behind each other. Um, the, the, of course, the, the desktop is not the same as an actual top of your desk with papers. Uh, you can hide things really easily. I'm a big proponent of option clicking away from an app. So when I'm, I'm clicking on a window that belongs to another app, if you hold down the option key, it will hide the previous app behind you as you leave. Uh, obviously, Command H, Command Option H for you know, hide the current app or hide other apps is very helpful. So just because my window has tons of my screen has tons of windows on doesn't mean they're all visible at the same time. But yes, inevitably they do get buried. Um, in particular, I can BB edit. I tend to leave tons of text files just open all the time because hey, it's text editor. It's not like they're taking up a lot of memory, and I am constantly editing a small set of text files. I never have to see an open save dialog box. I never have to go to the finder dig them out. Uh, when I quit BB edit and relaunch it, all of my open documents are restored. So I just leave them open all the time. That means I have a lot of VBA windows open. And no, there's not there's too many of them to arrange them spatially in any real sensible way. What I tend to do is like the set that I'm working on, I will pull and focus into a certain area, but then they'll go back into the various piles. Uh, but BB Edit has a window list palette that floats. I put it on the upper right, and then you can see all your windows. There are also keyboard shortcuts within BB Edit to quickly jump to an open file. Um, so rather than like, you know, uh, command tilde-ing just through a million windows. I can just, you know, hit control D or whatever the hell I have it bound to. There's two of them actually, control D and I think control O does something similar. I always forget which which bindings I have customized and which are defaults. But anyway, you can jump to an open document by doing that command and then typing a few letters and getting an autocomplete and hitting return. Most good text editors and IDEs have ways to do this. I have, by the way, I have the same thing within a document. I can jump to a symbol like a function name or whatever with a similar shortcut. Uh, so those type of things really help. It's It's a hierarchy, right? There's like within the application, and then all the windows within that application, and then I can BB edit within a given window to jump to a function or a mark or whatever, or if you're in Xcode to jump to some, you know, a, 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 a mark in your document or a bookmark. Um, there's always some kind of tool that will help you get to the thing you want. In a worst case scenario, you can click the window menu on pretty much any Mac app and just start typing on the keyboard and it will jump to the name of the window. That's, that's like the, 
the thing of last resort when you really can't find the thing you're looking for. Um, and obviously there's, there's expose and stuff like that. And then the other question I had for you, and this is a little bit of a, a red herring, but I know you're, you're famous for opening a lot of tabs. Are you at all interested in the tab group feature they added last year, where now in Safari, you can group the tabs by, by subject? I'm, I'm a little bit wary of it just because I don't know, like, I, I'm not sure where that fits in my life. First of all, I do not want to sync my tabs uh, between my Mac and my iPad and my phone. Some people do want that. I don't want that. Um, and so having a tab group that I can then look at elsewhere doesn't help me that much. I have started getting into profiles in Sonoma because I do have a use case for that. Because uh, I'm, you know, very often I have to be logged into a bunch of things as a bunch of different accounts, you know, got an ATP account and the hypercritical account and my personal account on 17 different services. So profiles is a great example of, of that. But tab groups, I mean, obviously I do make groups of tabs in Windows. But I don't really think I want or need them to persist. My the, my way of using web browsers, I have I use Chrome and Safari all the time, and have them both configured to restore all my windows every time I launch the app. So I, that's that's basically my my uh, form of persistence. Hey, whatever I was doing in Chrome when I was last using it, I'll see all that same stuff again. Same thing with Safari, uh, and it happens without me having to to manually do anything or configure anything. It just remembers everything, right? When I quit Chrome and relaunch it, it's just back to the, exactly the way it was. When I restart, when I log out and back in and relaunch my web browsers, everything's back to the way it was. One other question, follow-up question on that. So let's say you're going to sit down and record a podcast or do a research project or whatever, and something that you do repeatedly, uh, use your podcast for an example. You would probably have certain pages you go to for the show outline and resources and research. Do you have any sort of automation to just automatically load those or do you just go find them again every time you do it? Uh, for stuff that I use like on a weekly basis, like my podcast stuff, uh, I have a persistent set of tabs in a, in a particular, like my upper left Chrome window has uh, Gmail, Google Calendar, uh, two ATP documents, Erectives document. Uh, and I guess, yeah, I, yeah, I, I two ATP documents that are in the wrong order that I need to reshuffle, Erectives document, and then whatever other podcast I'm doing. And that that window and those tabs are just there open all the time. So I don't have anything to like bring up the ATP stuff. They're always already open in tabs. I And practically speaking, I access them throughout the entire week. It's not like just, you know, I don't have to look at that ATP tab until the day of the show. No, all week I'm building the show, building and figuring out what, you know, you know how it is with the document, building up what we're yeah. going to talk about or whatever. Um, when I'm recording a podcast, I do not have any automation to do anything because my setup is just so simple. I launch Audio Hijack, which remembers the size and position of my window and what my last session was. It's my podcasting recording thing, and it's just there. And then I launch Zoom by clicking a link in the ATP document for the persistent Zoom room for the ATP thing. Oh, and then I also launch like the chat room, my IRC client, and it goes, the window goes exactly where it was. Like the thing I have to remember to do is launch Audio Hijack. Uh, launch my IRC client and click the link to start the, the, you know, the zoom thing. And I don't have any automation for that. I'm not, I know people are into like, Oh, I got a stream deck and I press one button to launch seven apps dealing with some kind of automation like that to me is more difficult than just remembering to launch them. It's not like I'm going to forget to launch audio hijack. It's not like I'm going to forget where my ATP show notes are or whatever, or it just, I, I haven't had a setup that's complicated. Now, if I recorded lots of different podcasts with lots of complicated recording setups, like, you know, Snell records so many different podcasts and some of them are very complicated, like the Total Party Kill things with Dungeons and Dragons cameras, maybe then I would invest in that setup, but I'm definitely kind of, or invest in that kind of automation. But I'm definitely the kind of person who just 
does all the things manually. Maybe as I get older and like, you know, checklist manifesto, I forget to do something on the checklist and I'll have to start making an automation. But so far, the number of things I need to do to prepare for an activity is so small and I do them without really thinking about it. And I haven't been really forgetting them uh, that I think I'm mostly okay. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform for building your brand and growing your business online. With Squarespace, you can stand out with a beautiful website, engage with your audience, and sell anything, products, services, and even content. Because Squarespace has everything you need all in one place. I love building on top of Squarespace, and their new Fluid Engine makes it easier than ever to make something that looks awesome. You start with a template and then customize it with your brand and your details. And you get to use this really cool drag and drop technology for desktop and mobile to stretch your imagination and build exactly what you want. Fluid Engine is built in and ready to go on all new Squarespace sites. You can sell your products in an online store with Squarespace, physical or digital products. They have all the tools you need. And your customers get flexible payment options. You can make checkout seamless for your customers with simple but powerful payment tools. Accept credit cards, PayPal, Apple Pay, and offer customers the option to buy now and pay later with services like Afterpay and ClearPay. Like I said, I love building on Squarespace because they have everything you need. And say that you're not launching with a store, but maybe you need to add one later on. Well, with a lot of products, that would be difficult. But with Squarespace, you simply enable it. You add the pages to your site, the navigation reconfigures itself, and you're ready to go. So with Squarespace, your site can grow with your business or your project over time. If you're ready to start a website, go to squarespace.com MPU for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the code MPU to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain name. That's squarespace.com slash MPU and the code MPU when you decide to sign up to get 10% off your first purchase and to show your support for the show. Our thanks to Squarespace for their support of Mac Power users and Relay FM. John, since the last time we talked, one thing has changed in your life is you have gone indie uh, in 2022. You left your programming job uh, to proceed with podcasting, writing, and other projects, including some of the apps we've talked about today. How's it going? I mean, it's going. Uh, you know, my timing is always not particularly great. I don't know if it's my timing or the timing in my life. To It, it reminds me a lot of when my uh, my first child, my oldest, uh, my son was born uh, back in 2004. Uh, he was born, and uh, shortly after he was born, uh, I essentially got laid off. Uh, someone had acquired the company that I work for and said, you can continue to have your job as long as you move to a different state. Uh, and that was not going to happen. So if you didn't move with the company, you were out of a job. And so that's not great to have your first baby and then essentially get laid off. Uh, and that was a difficult time. And with me leaving my, uh, you know, regular jobby job after 25 years as a uh, full stack web developer, as the kids call it today, uh, th- to pursue essentially my podcasting and then, you know, to get more seriously into application writing uh, full time. Uh, then the podcast ad market kind of fell apart, <laughs> you know, right on schedule. So it's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm dedicating a lot of my time now, not scrambling, but just really working hard to figure out how can I make the various businesses that are now the sole sources of my income 
work better. <laughs> I mean, I would be happy if they just worked as well as they did when I left my job, but of course they're working worse. <laughs> so you you would think, oh, I left my job and now my the things that my independent projects really start taking off, but instead uh, I left my regular job and the things I do independently started to get worse. Uh, so I'm working on that. I, the good thing is I have more time to work on that and to pursue other things. I have spent a lot more time on my apps. They don't make a lot of money, but the experience I get building them prepares me to potentially build the next apps that may make more money. I have spent way more time on my podcasts, the business side of the podcast, doing various things uh, and just generally trying to shore that part up. Um, yeah, so that's where I'm at. Like, it's it's difficult. Uh, you both know how it is. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. Um, the security of having your regular job was always reassuring. And I was never without a job, you know, since I left school for, you know, again, for 25 years. I always had another job lined off, even the one where I got laid off when my son was born. I basically had a new job lined up so that, you know, because I was like, there was like a month where I was there helping close down the uh, the office in Massachusetts before they moved elsewhere. And they wanted me to stay longer, but I had already found myself another job within that month. So I'd never been without a job uh, until until I voluntarily left and didn't get another job. So I'm spending all my time doing the indie thing and trying to finish up on house projects and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, I'm trying to spend more time on the kids and their college hunt and all that other stuff before they leave the house for good. Um, I'm very happy with my decision. I think I did the right thing at the right time. Uh, but, you know, uh, sometimes it's not that easy. Yeah. And you're like, you and I are of similar ages. So like, we're at the point where we can kind of see the end of capital expenditures. Like the house will get paid off in X number of years. The will kids it? will get done. Well, in theory, right? Yeah. We refinancing and getting, you know, we'd refinance for lower interest rates, but then we just reset the clock and how long we have to be paying off. This yeah, house. I know. Daisy and I were just looking at that number over the weekend. We're going, that's a lot more years than I thought yeah, it was. How much time do we have left? Are they sure we're going to live that long? Why did they give us this loan? <laughs> but the uh, but the kids, you know, are are going through college. But at the end, hopefully, there's an end date for that. Like, you can see the end, but you're still at the most expensive part of it all. Oh, yeah. Anyway, soon I'll so, have two kids in college. Not looking forward to that. Yeah. Well, it, it is uh, it is tough. But the, the other thing that you find, right, is suddenly you are looking at the business. Like for me, the Max Sparky stuff, all I did for 15 years was make stuff. I never really stopped to think about how the whole thing works and how to make it more efficient and do, you know, make better production, make the whole thing, you know, work better as a business. And actually I found that kind of nice to be able to have the breathing room to do that. And I'm sure that's something you're in the middle of right now yourself. Yeah. It's not really my strength, but yeah, now that I have the time to look at it, it's like the, the question of, what should I be doing to make the business more successful? And it's not always obvious. Like when you're doing it as an indie thing, you're like, oh, what should I be doing to make this more fun or to do good stuff? But like when you're looking at it from a business perspective, it's like I could do a lot of different things. Which one of these things will essentially, will this make me way less money? Maybe I shouldn't do that one. Will this make me more money? Will this make me more money short term, but less money long term? Like what's the best thing to do for the business to to, you know, grow my customer base, to satisfy my existing customers, to, to, uh, you know, to make up for the massive deficit in podcast advertising revenue. Like what can we do to make the business more successful? And it's tricky. Uh, it's, it's not easy to know what to do and things that you try, uh, there are risks associated with them because you could try something that all of your existing customers hate and it's hard to win back that trust. So you want to try to do things that will make everybody happy and also make the business successful. 
When it comes to that shift of having a bunch of side projects that become your main projects, I know when I did it and when David did it, you find yourself sort of realigning your tools, at least, at least we did, uh, when it came to the responsibilities that were shifting. Uh, have you had things sort of in your, your computing life that you've had to readdress now that things like ATP and your apps are the main thing? Uh, that part of it I've honestly found to be kind of a relief because I've been living like the the double life for so long. It's part of the reason. Well, we, I'll have a link in the show notes to my uh, blog post that I did when I went independent. Part of the reason I did it was because uh, the phrase I would always think of is I'd been burning the candle at both ends for so many years, having living two working lives, a regular nine to five job working life, which just was increasingly complicated and demanding as I advanced in my career. Because, you know, when you're young, you can just be like, oh, I go into work, I do my job and I come home. But as you get older and, and advance more in the company, you have more responsibility, more things to deal with or whatever. So there was that whole work life. I had work accounts. I had a work computer. I had a work calendar. I didn't have a work phone, although it would have given me one, but I kept with the one phone. But I had this whole other world of work stuff, all of my work products, all of my work code, all of my work, uh, you know, coworkers and bosses and things to do in place, like just so much stuff. Uh, and then, of course, during that entire time, I was doing something independently. I was writing articles for Ars Technica or doing podcasts. You know, it's like I always had my personal world of stuff, too. And now, independent, I don't have to work stuff anymore. I never need to run Outlook. I never need to use Exchange. I never need to log into Active Directory ever again, right? All that is gone. My work laptop is gone. I'm not getting work texts or work calls. I'm not in work teams. I don't have to use teams. God, we use Slack at work for a brief time. It was great. And I made it was teams and I hated it. Right. <laughs> so it has simplified my computing life. And all, all that's left is what I already had. My personal devices and my personal computers were always geared towards writing, podcasting, software development. They were never, I could, practically speaking, I literally couldn't do any work on any of my own hardware. Like, because you had to be on the work VPN you can only connect to the work VPN from the work computer. Like, you know how it is. I was in healthcare in, my, in the last job that I had. And it's very security conscious. So you can't even use your personal devices to do anything related to work. I could not read my work email on my phone. I couldn't do anything from my from my work max. And I was in that job for like 12 years, right? So I had this whole separate world. So when I left behind the work world, I was like, oh, I just have my personal computing. And, not, and my personal computing world didn't need to change because it was already 100% focused on my personal project. So uh, I, I found that part of it to be a clear win. And no, you know, yeah. no big changes, I think, in, in uh, what I do. Although, I mean, recently, um, that's not entirely, I mean, I probably would have done this anyway, but just to give an example, uh, you might have heard about this in ATP, but uh, we, as, a, as an independent podcast with a very independent mindset, um, we run our own CMS for our podcast and our own membership program. And that has business benefits because we don't have to pay X percent to like a membership program or whatever. But the downside is we have to write all, maintain all that code ourselves. And for the longest time, Marco was doing it all himself, Marco Armand, my co-host, uh, because he has experience in that area and he wanted to do it. So he did it. Uh, and then Casey and I would always offer to pitch in and help. Uh, but he was like, well, here's access to the Git repo, but I, can't, I don't know how you guys are going to run the server or whatever. So recently I spent some time and got the ATP CMS up and running on my local machine so that I can work on it. And we have a long list of things that we want to do to the CMS that Marco hasn't had time for because he has a lot of projects and now I'm doing them or trying to do them anyway. Uh, and to do that, I've had to run Docker on my Mac. I made a Docker container with the ATP CMS and I'm dealing with all that. 
that is a change to my computing environment, basically making a PHP, you know, MySQL development environment for the ATP CMS software that I didn't write using technologies that I may not have chosen if, if I was doing it myself, but nevertheless, it's what we have. Uh, and so that has been a change. But like I said, if I had still, if I was still working, I would have done the exact same change. Has it, uh, has going independent given you any other new areas of interest? Like for me, I had this dormant woodworking gene. I was doing it years and years ago, but then having two careers like you that that stopped. And then it's like, and I had no idea I was going to do this when I stopped being a lawyer, but like within a couple months, I'm like, Oh yeah, I really want to reopen my wood shop and make some stuff. Uh, did you have anything like that jump out at you after you uh, left the day job? I have tons of left behind hobbies just like that. Uh, but I haven't picked up any of them yet. Uh, mostly because part of the, Part of my intentional goal with going independent was to carve out more time for non-work stuff, uh, which is why, like, everyone says, oh, you went independent. Why aren't you doing 25 more projects? Like, what are you doing with your extra time? I'm putting into things that aren't work-related, like family stuff, like having more time with my kids before they leave the house for good, being uh, being able to help them more with the college search and, uh, you know, SATs and chauffeuring them around as much as I joked about it before, like, you know, being a more present father and parent, right? Being a more yeah. present husband, uh, spending more time on my health. Those things don't show up in the external world as in, where's the new app that you're making? How come you're not on 17 new podcasts? But that was an explicit thing that I wanted to do going independent was give myself more time for stuff that is not work. Or even if something's always doing products around the house, right? That's not a hobby. It's not a thing I particularly relish doing, but it needed to get done. And now I'm the one who has time to do it picking up all the, you know, the uh, more of the chores around the house, grocery shopping, meal preparation, you know, because my wife still works full time, right? Uh, so a lot of the things that she used to do, now I'm picking up. Uh, so that's that's been the biggest change. I, ha I haven't gotten to the point where now it's like, okay, actually I can pick up a hobby that I put down, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. Maybe when the kids eventually leave the house, then I'll have time to pick up those hobbies because honestly a lot of my time is spent, uh, you know, thinking about and, and doing stuff that's kid related. Uh, but for now, uh, uh, don't, I feel like I don't quite have time for that yet. I'm just filling it with other things. Even, even then, even when the kids leave, honestly, I should be spending more time on my health than I am. I'm spending more time than I used to, but as you get older, I think the, the amount of time that you can spend on your health productively kind of increases. So maybe when the kids leave the house, rather than picking up a hobby that I'll enjoy, I'll just like, you know, try to increase the exercise, uh, amount of exercise that I do and uh, try to eat better. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Tailscale. Go to tailscale.com MPU for secure remote access to shared resources. The free plan includes three users and 100 devices. Available at tailscale.com MPU. Human scale teams build trust networks by securely connecting devices with Tailscale. With TailScale, you can connect to Home Assistant to check on your place while away. You can also stream movies, shows, and music anywhere from your network-detached storage box using Plex or Jellyfin. Plus, you can access a pie hole from anywhere and secure your connection when on a Wi-Fi you don't totally trust. And you can now sign into TailScale using your Apple ID, so if you prefer having your credentials managed by Apple in the iCloud, this option is for you. Just sign into TailScale with your Apple ID on Mac or iPhone using Touch ID or Face ID for a super fast sign-in. Plus, you can also use a passkey to authenticate to your TailScale account 
a new feature you may remember seeing at WWDC. Once connected, you can use Tail Drop to move files between MacBook, iPhone, iPad, Linux VMs, Docker containers, Steam Deck, and even Windows boxes. If you're looking to share your work more widely, TailScale Funnel makes it easier than ever to share your local development over the internet for collaboration, testing, and experimentation. Using TailScale Funnel, you can receive a webhook from GitHub, share a local service with your coworker, or even host a personal blog or status page on your own computer. Funnel is a secure way to expose your development environment to a stable URL over the internet, complete with auto-provisioned TLS certificates. Use it from the command line or the new VS Code extension. With a few keystrokes, you can securely expose a local port to the internet right from the IDE. Tailscale has clients for macOS and iOS, Windows, Linux, and Android. The free plan includes three users and 100 devices. So head to tailscale.com MPU to build your team's trusted network today. That's tailscale.com MPU. And if you're interested in working at Tailscale, they're currently hiring a macOS engineer. You can navigate to their careers page for more. Our thanks to Tailscale for their support of the Mac Power users. On a recent episode of ATP, you talked about troubleshooting a weird macOS bug. And people should go listen to that episode. I mean, your, your storytelling and your craft around that is phenomenal. But it got me thinking about, about troubleshooting itself. You know, um, I'm sure y'all get sort of the same feedback that we do. Uh, we get a lot of tech support questions in our in our feedback inbox, and that's great, and we're happy to help. Um, but I thought it'd be interesting to talk about sort of the art of troubleshooting. You know, you've been around computers and a professional programmer for a long time, and you definitely think the the way you think about troubleshooting, I think, is very similar to the way that I was taught uh, back in my Mac Genius days a hundred years ago. Um, and basically, the the way that that we were taught is each step of the way you want to try to split the problem. And so like a broad example is, is it hardware? Is it software? And there are a bunch of different things you could do underneath that category to, to work that out. Is it the cable or the device? Is it the system or the user? And I find that to be very helpful. Um, but I wanted to hear from you about sort of the way that you think about troubleshooting and uh, advice that you would give people who are are looking at an unusual problem with their technology or something else and and maybe some principles they could apply. Yeah, for me, uh, computers, com- you can think of them as a hobby, but although obviously they're kind of like a life pursuit. But when I first got into computers, I was like an eight-year-old or whatever, right? Um, they were a thing that I was excited about. Uh, and if you are into computers starting in the 1970s, being into computers basically means troubleshooting them. I mean, that's what it meant from the beginning, because to get the computer to do anything was basically a troubleshooting exercise. And troubleshooting computers, not that it's eventually you started to be able to do more interesting things with them, but troubleshooting them was such a huge part of my early computer use for the first few decades. Like sometimes it felt like that's all I was doing was like I would get an interesting thing and it wouldn't work right and have to figure out why. Right. Uh, Certainly in classic Mac OS with extension conflicts and everything like it, I just got so much experience troubleshooting and it's not that I enjoy it, but like it's some you do kind of relish it in some ways of like getting everything, getting everything set up just the way you want it and working and humming along nicely so that not, you get none of the bad stuff with all the good stuff. Uh, so I do have a lot of experience in that. And it's part of the reason why it's difficult to talk to other people about troubleshooting. People will want advice, even just people in my family or friends like I'm having a problem on my computer. Can you help me? 
it's like, you know, it's mm-hmm. like I could troubleshoot it, but it would take more time and energy. Like, <laughs> can I live in your house for a week, for a month, for two months? Like, wait, what? I, can't you just come in and fix the problem? It's like, that's not how troubleshooting works, right? It's, it's, you know, and it's like, well, why don't you just tell me how to do it? You don't need to come and do it for me. Troubleshooting computers, the amount of background information you have is tremendously helpful, the background knowledge, right? So I've, you know, I have a engineering, engineering degree, uh, computer engineering, which is kind of like computer science mixed with electrical engineering, uh, a programmer by trade my entire career. I know a lot of stuff about computers. Um, and I have comprehensive experience with Apple operating systems. Just I've used all of them that I, that I currently use from the day one of their existence. Uh, and I know a lot about them. I used to write big, long articles about Mac OS 10. I know all this Mac history. I know about all these applications. I just, there's a lot of background knowledge and someone else trying to troubleshoot without all of that. It's like, well, do you know how CPUs work? Do you know how operating systems work? Do you, you know, do you know how, uh, you know, applications work and how recent versions of operating systems have changed various subsystems? Like, no, I don't know any of that. Do you know the history of these operating systems and what features were added when and which ones were problematic and which one weren't? Do you know anything about it? Like, it's like, what? I just want to just tell me why I can't print, Right. There's so much background information that is so helpful to know. To give an example, I'm always jealous of the people who are really good at disassembly, people who can disable system integrity protection and sort of attach to a running application and look at the disassembly and figure out where things are going wrong inside programs. Those are skills I don't have because I was a web developer and I did not develop the skill to sort of hop into assembly code on a running application um, on the Mac operating system and figure out where it's going wrong. I wish I had those skills because they would be useful. So there's always one level up from where you are. But the level I'm at of just like knowing how computers work and how programs work and knowing all this history, that gives you such an advantage for figuring out where to deploy the thing you just talked about, Steve. Where it's like, okay, given all your background knowledge, where do you start? Because I see people troubleshooting all the time and they have notions that are, they might as well be like superstition, right? Because they're not founded in anything. They're just based on misunderstood past experiences where they don't really understand what's going on and they will start barking up the wrong tree. Mm-hmm. And they will spend a long time barking and you know they're not going to get anywhere. Uh, and when something does happen for them, good or bad, they don't know why and they misattributed it. And it just leads you into all like they can apply the deploy the same methods of like, oh, I'm trying to do a process of elimination. And I'm trying to figure out if it's this or it's that. And they're just they have incorrect assumptions and they draw incorrect conclusions. Um, and even even, you know, when you're doing the right things, as evidenced by this last bug thing. You just have to be tenacious and say, check your assumptions, recheck your assumptions. Aha, you think you've had a revelation, but have you had a revelation? If that revelation is true, then the following thing should also be true. Let's test them. Hmm, I guess it's more complicated than you thought, because if it was really A, then B would be true, but B is not true. So what's going on? Test, test, retest, check your assumptions. Find new experiments, like the scientific method, like what can I try that will support or disprove the, I, the conclusion I think I came to based on this other experience. And that is a painful process that most people don't enjoy, but I kind of enjoyed the chase, especially when it's something like the bug that I talked about in the last ATP, where it's like, it's an easily avoidable bug that does not really affect me, but it's clear to me that it's like a serious bug. And if it is a bug in the operating system, then it should be fixed. So I just want to narrow it down and serve it up on a platter to Apple to say, pretty sure this is your bug. And if it is your bug, it's a pretty bad one. And yeah, I can work around it, but it's new. It didn't exist before and it does exist now. So it's kind of a regression and you should really fix it. And I just want to, I want to do all the work and just give it to them and say, here, I found it. Here's where the bug is. 
please fix it for me. Um, and I, I get satisfaction from that, like, because unlike a feature request where they can just ignore or whatever, if something is broken and broken in a way that you can reproduce 100% of the time and that you've narrowed it down and figured out what it takes to reproduce it and what the parameters are, then you can chuck it over the wall and then cross your fingers and wait a few years and hopefully Apple will fix it. Yeah, I know there's been a lot of conversation over the the last year or maybe even more about the the sort of feedback cycle, right? Where Apple requests feedback from developers and users and then sometimes the the response to that feedback actually very often is is nothing. And maybe it gets fixed and you notice that it's fixed, maybe not. Um I know y'all have talked about this on ATP at length, um, but it is something that I think, you know, a lot of users aren't aren't real familiar with that system, right? Apple ships a feedback app in beta versions of their OSs, and it's actually there in release versions. It's just sort of hidden, but you can still get to it, and you can submit feedback and screenshots, and it does a lot of data collection on, like, what's running at a given time, Um I know that you go through that process, you know, that you, that you are providing feedback to Apple. You're giving them samples of what's happening. Uh, you're talking about it on their shows. What is your sort of overall feeling about Apple's feedback system and where do you think there's room for improvement? Yeah. I mean, I, I, uh, amongst the, uh, my other co-hosts on ATP, I feel like I have the uh, most empathy for Apple having worked in very large companies, uh, on software that gets feedback. Um, I understand that it's a difficult problem, but Apple, in Apple's case, it's exacerbated by two things. One, they have a bazillion customers. That makes it harder because you just get, that means you have more feedback. And two, their culture of secrecy means, and their sort of like marketing discipline means that they don't want to expose uh, how the sausage is made at all if they can help it. And so there is just an increasing gap between uh, those of us on the outside who find a problem and the people on the inside who are tasked with fixing it. And they not, Apple does not want us to communicate at all about anything ever. And that's not how you solve a problem. <laughs> if you're trying to solve a problem, someone is experiencing the problem and someone can fix it. You need them to talk to each other, right? It's just, you know, it's like, imagine uh, if you were trying to like uh, figure out how to uh, open a lock and there's a lock pick and there's you, and you don't know how to do it. You've got the tools, but you don't know how to pick a lock. And there's an expert lock pick. And they're in Australia. And the only way you can communicate with them is by put, sending a letter by boat that takes six months to arrive. <laughs> and how long is it going to take you to open that lock? Versus if you could just FaceTime them and say, look, just tell me what to do right now. Human being communicating right now. Oh, and by the way, when you sent them the letter to Australia, they wouldn't be allowed to read it. Instead, someone else would have to read the letter. And then they would have to put on a play that expresses the letter to the person, to the lock pick. And then the lock pick would tell the people who put on the play... <laughs> what they thought about the play and they would write a review of the play and then you would get the review of the play back maybe <laughs> like it's just it's this ridiculous farce of like can we just talk can i just talk to a human being for 30 seconds like you know to, to give a recent example there was a bug uh i found when writing my apps it was a bug it was a test flight bug or my test flight testers were encountering this bug for the longest time, for like a year, I'm like, this has got to be me. I'm a new Mac developer. I'm making a dumb mistake, right? And so many of my Tesla people are running into this bug where like the app just won't launch. I debugged it to the best of my ability. I'm like, I cannot, A, I can't reproduce it ever, right? Because that's always the way it is. And B, it's real because my users are experiencing it and I cannot figure it out, right? Eventually, I did after like a year and a half of this, figure out what the bug is. And it was Apple's bug. And I narrowed it down using my little troubleshooting technique and I filed it. 
And, uh, you know, through a series of back and forths, eventually, either because I filed it or because they were already going to do it, they fixed it. It's fixed in Sonoma, right? And it's like just there was a farcical back and forth over the course of maybe six months to a year about this where I didn't hear anything on my bug report or the responses I got from my bug report were nonsensical. But practically speaking, they fixed it in Sonoma, right? So I closed the bug because they never close it, right? So I have to close the bug and say, I recognize that this was fixed in Sonoma, closing, right? But through back channels, which is the way this stuff always works, someone inside Apple, you know, I was talking to someone, a human inside Apple, secretly, you can't t- tell anybody that you talk to a human inside Apple, but I did, I talked to a human who works in Apple, and I said, you know, lots of my testers are still using Ventura. So yeah, I know this is fixed in Sonoma, but they're still on the test flight, and they're still in Ventura, and every time they release a new test flight build, they run into this bug. And every new tester that I come that happens to be in Ventura is going to hit this bug and going to be like, hey, why, you know, I can't like put a fact item in their face and nobody reads the release notes. They just so you know, if you're on Ventura, this thing is going to happen and it's a known bug and it was fixed in Sonoma, blah, blah, blah. So I told the Apple person, is there any chance of them like backporting this fixed to Ventura? Because yeah, I know it's fixed in Sonoma, but lots of people still run Ventura, including my testers. And since this is a test flight bug, it would be nice if it was fixed. And the person said, you should file a new feedback specifically asking for this bug to be fixed in Ventura. And I swear it was like a three months farce that's ongoing where I filed the bug and say, hey, this uh, in bug FB, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Uh, there was a bug and you guys fixed it in Sonoma. Thanks a lot for that. Uh, but it would be great if that bug could be fixed in Ventura. And here's why I have testers on Ventura, blah, 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 I explained or whatever. So anyway, just reminding you, this bug was fixed. This was the feedback corresponding to the fixed bug. This report is asking for you to fix this bug in Ventura. No response for months. Get a response that says, uh, this is fixed in Sonoma. You should use Sonoma. <laughs> I'm like, did you read the description? In the description, I said, I know this is fixed in Sonoma. This, but I basically copied and pasted the description again as a response. First of all, at least I got a response after a few months, which is great, right? Someone responded. But second of all, the response, as usual, was like, did a human write this? Did the human who wrote this read the description of the bug at all? I literally copy and pasted sentences from the description in my response. Then months pass, and then they say, oh, I apologize for misunderstanding. Yeah, we're not going to fix this in Ventura. It would have taken 30 seconds of conversation, because I'm not mad about it or whatever. I, just, I would have just liked to say, if I had talked to a human and said, hey, it would be great if this is backdoor to Ventura, and they could have just said, yeah, we're not going to backport that. Boom, done. See how easy that is? Instead, it's months. It's months, and this just inane back and forth where you feel like you're not communicating with a human. That's inefficient. It's inefficient for me, but it's also inefficient for Apple. Why did somebody have to go and look at this bug and give their response and go back and forth with those weeks in between or months in between the back and forth as the ship travels from here to Australia, right? It's wasting everybody's time. It's like sometimes you just need one high bandwidth conversation. I'm not even talking about high bandwidth. Sometimes you just need one real-time conversation or one conversation with people who are willing to respond within a day or a week instead of it being months or years. And by the way, uh, the bug, my window bug on that ATP episode, uh, I filed that back in April. Still just zero response from Apple. Just zero, nothing, not even a bad response, just zero. And they're probably working on it, but they don't want to tell me about that. So I just have to sit out here with my fingers crossed and wait. We like to close our guest episodes with some favorite uh, apps and services. And see, you've got quite a list of design tools here, some of which I don't have a lot of firsthand experience with. Uh, So let's talk about these Affinity apps. Yeah, in this section of like favorite app and services, I had to think about, you know, what are what are some favorites that I'm using? And I think the 
the, the most affection I have for apps that I've been using for a while, but my affection has been growing is for these design apps. Um, one of the parts of my business uh, is making merchandise that the uh, listeners to my podcast buy. And I'm usually the one to uh, come up with the idea and also make the artwork for like our t-shirts and stuff. Uh, and for years, I've used vector drawing programs to do that. Back in the day when Adobe would let you like buy one month of Illustrator for like $10. I used to do that. Do you remember those days? Those were, mm -hmm. yeah. You can still do it for $10 a month. Build annually. Don't miss the fine print. Anyway, um, but Illustrator, like I, I've been using Illustrator since Illustrator 88, but not in a professional capacity. So I was always just like a dilettante, kind of like, oh, I can hop into Illustrator. I can get some stuff done or whatever, but I was never really good at it. And a lot of people suggested years ago, you should check out Affinity Designer. Affinity is uh, competing with Adobe, and one of their big selling points is you can just buy our apps outright for money instead of subscribing to them, which some people find appealing. I found appealing because I'm not a professional designer. I'm just going to use this app two or three times a year to make a t-shirt, right? And so that was a good fit for me. So I bought Affinity Designer, and now Affinity Designer 2 is out, and I'm actually using the beta of it or whatever. But over the years... I've really come to appreciate Affinity Designer. It fits my brain in a way that Adobe Illustrator never has because Illustrator is saddled with this historical baggage. It's an application that dates back to at least 1988. <laughs> As I said, Illustrator 88. That's what the 88 was for. It was for 1988, right? It's got all sorts of quirks that are, you know, historical relics that people who've been using Illustrator forever appreciate, but that don't make any sense to me because I never really truly learned it, right? And so Affinity Designer works in a, in a way with fewer quirks. It's not a super duper like, you know, I don't even know if they're using native Mac things. I think it might be, if it's, if it's not cross-platform, it definitely looks kind of cross-platform-y. Uh, of course, Photoshop has long since been, you know, a completely close platform and same thing with Illustrator. But anyway, I've always been impressed with the feature set of Affinity Designer. Every time I try to do something in there, I guess that something is possible and I can usually figure it out. And if I can't, I can usually Google for it quickly and figure it out. I really appreciate this app. Um, and every new version, I appreciate it more. Every time I try to do something more complicated, that I'm like, this must be possible. And I'm so excited to learn that it is possible and that I can figure out how to do it without, without tons of research because it more or less works how I might expect it to. Um, and it is just a one-time purchase. Uh, Affinity makes a suite of applications and through various mistakes in the years past, I have bought all of their applications twice, not like version one and version two, but the same version twice because I bought them all individually. And then at some point there was a bundle where you could get all the Affinity apps and I had forgotten that I had bought them all. And so I bought them all again. So I think I have <laughs> two licenses to all their applications. It's okay. It was just on sale, but, but I do appreciate them. So designer is my number one pick there because that's a vector illustration program that I love and I spend tons and tons of time in. They do make a photo application. It was basically a Photoshop competitor called Affinity Photo. And this is an interesting counterexample because Adobe Photoshop, which I've also been using since I launched it on my black and white Mac screen. Yes, you can run Photoshop on a black and white Mac screen. It was a thing. Um, it was silly, but it was a thing. I've been using Photoshop for ages, since, since the 80s or whenever the heck it came out. Um, and unlike Illustrator, I do know the weird quirks of Photoshop. I tried using Affinity Photo, but I'm so used to the weird way that Photoshop works that I keep coming back to Photoshop. Uh, not because it's, you know, particularly better or more powerful or whatever. In many ways, I do like Affinity Photo, but it's just 
my fingers and the keyboard shortcuts and all the weird quirks about the way Photoshop works, I'm used to Photoshop. And I was thinking about this before the show. It's like, it's so weird that Affinity Designer, I'm like, oh, I love that so much better than Illustrator. That's because I, I'm not a giant Illustrator head. And it's not like I know everything about Photoshop. I'm no Photoshop expert, but I have been using it way, way more. Like I've, I've always used Photoshop, you know, first pirating it when I was a kid and then getting legit versions as I got older. That's always been my bitmap graphic uh, editing program. And I use, you know, one one hundredth of a corner of the functionality of Photoshop, but I know that tiny corner really well. And uh, that's why Affinity Photo, despite the fact that I apparently own two copies of it, has never grabbed me. I think Affinity Photo might be a great app for somebody who is not already infected by Photoshop sickness, like apparently mm-hmm. I am, yeah. but I still keep going back to Photoshop. I think that's a thing though, right? I mean, a lot of us have found alternative apps for Adobe over the years. I've had the same experience with Pixelmator Pro. And like you, I was Photoshop. I, you know, I was able to do stuff in it, but uh, Pixelmator Pro came out. I don't know, it was about 10 years ago and it was a native app, no subscription. And now I feel more comfortable in that one than Photoshop. Although Photoshop is always doing interesting stuff. And uh, I think for a lot of people out there, we're not interested in subscriptions. We don't make our livings with Adobe apps. And these these apps that are in the ballpark with Photoshop or Adobe apps might be something you want to look at. Yeah, I do have a subscription to Photoshop. Like I always have it. <laughs> it's just it's a yeah. baseline thing that I, I I kind of wish I uh, that if any photo replaced it for me, but it hasn't. And uh, you mentioned Pixelmator Pro. I also own Pixelmator Pro, but I don't use it as a Photoshop replacement. What I use it for is from within Apple Photos, where I manage my photo library. You can do edit in to edit in an external editor. Like it will basically let Pixelmator Pro and other applications present their own UI within the Apple Photos app to edit a photo. And Pixelmator Pro has some of the friendliest and best tools for doing photo extension and repair. Obviously, they're all like machine learning powered. They, they, they were ML. Before AI became the buzzword, everything was ML. So Pixelmator Pro added lots of ML features for increasing the resolution or extending pictures or repairing things. If you use like the basic Band-Aid repair tool in Pixelmator Pro to like erase something that you don't want on a picture and compared it to the repair tool in Apple Photos, it's comical. The Apple one is so bad, <laughs> like so kind of, it just smears Vaseline on your picture. Whereas the Pixelmator one, it's like magic, right? You know, it's because it's ML powered and I'm assuming they'll eventually change the marketing to say it's AI powered, but it's the same stuff. So I use Pixelmator Pro entirely as an editor to use within Apple Photos to mess with my photos. And Pixelmator also has another app, which I also own. I have a little bit of a software buying problem um, called Photomator, which as far as I can tell is basically the photo related functionality from Pixelmator Pro and a standalone application that can read your Apple Photos library. To give another example of an app that Apple made where yeah, they make Apple Photos, but that photo library is accessible to third-party applications. And I have several third-party applications that are essentially alternatives to Apple Photos that reads your same Apple Photos library. When I launch Raw Power, which is another app that I use, when I launch Photomator, they present me my iCloud photo library in their interface, but with their own set of editing tools around it. I tend not to go directly to those apps unless I'm, usually when I'm messing with Raw, like Raw Power, as the name suggests, is really good raw editing and so does Photomator. So I'll occasionally go there to mess with Raws. But most of the time, I'm in Apple Photos using Pixelmator Pro as my external editor. So that's another weird relationship I have with an application where it's like an important accessory 
for letting me continue to use Apple Photos, which I mostly like and where I have, well, not that I mostly like it, but I have literal decades of, or is it decades? Maybe singular decade, decade and a half of effort put into organizing and tagging my photo library and all that effort is in Apple Photos. Um, so yeah, I can see the photos elsewhere, but like all of my, uh, you know, I, I think you can still see most of like the, it used to be the ratings, but those are gone now. You can still see the favorites. You can still see all the other changes in the other applications as well. But anyway, Apple Photos, I'm still sticking with that for now. Uh, I haven't changed whole hog to Photomator or Raw Power, but I do love having all those applications available to me to mess with photos because that's, I mean, that's not a hobby that I've taken on since becoming indie, but that is, has become one of my big hobbies is slowly increasing the, the number and cost of cameras that I own and, uh, you know, spending more and more time taking hopefully better and better pictures when my family is on vacation and then printing books. Another uh, little endorsement for Pixelmator Pro is if you like wallpaper, their AI slash machine learning uh, tool to expand a small image to a large one, that is your friend. Because you can take any image that you find out there. Like uh, my kids and I, during pandemic, we started watching Avatar, Last Avatar. And I got into it. I really enjoyed it. Got some artwork from it, but it was from like 10 years ago. And all the wallpapers were too small. So I ran them through Pixelmator Pro, blew up the size, gave them my kids. They were very happy. Yeah, I, I use it a lot for the uh, like the iPhone. Or was it iOS 17 or 16? 16 maybe added the like the lock the new lock screen stuff where you can put lots of different images there and have it shuffle through them. And of course, yeah. I put pictures of my family. But it's really hard to find pictures of your family that you like that are tall enough to fit an iPhone screen, especially since you don't want their face to be like you know centered in the picture. You want their face to be a little bit lower because the clock's going to be over their head right on the lock screen. Uh, Pixelmator Pro, uh, you know, extension thing where you can just extend the image above their head, whether it's sky or a bunch of trees, just to fill in the rest of that image. I think at least over half of the like five or six pictures that I have rotating on my, you know, phone shuffle lock screen are uh, quote unquote ML extended, where the top half of the image practically is machine generated and the face is, you know, below that. Do you feel like you'll stick with Apple Photos as the backbone of your photo system? Are you, are you happy with it? I mean, I'm not happy with it. <laughs> like, <laughs> okay. it, it here's That's the thing. Bad question. <laughs> yeah. Going third party is always like a risk, even though it is an open ecosystem or whatever. Whenever Apple adds features, are those going to be exposed to the third parties? And if they are exposed, when? I just wish Apple Photos, like I like the feature set. I just wish it worked better. Like I want it to recognize my faces. I want to have people albums. I'm glad that I can have an album for my dog, right? I do like the, you know, their, their plugin system for making photo books, right? Cause they stopped doing that, but they opened it up to third parties, right? Um, I have invested all this time tagging and organizing things. I just wish it did all the things a little bit better. Um, and I'm wary about going all in on something like Lightroom or a different system. Well, Lightroom would be a total conversion. That's a non-starter, but like something like, even something like Photomator or Raw Power, it's like, you just never need to launch Apple Photos again. Just use Photomator for everything. But I, I just worry about, unlike, for example, Calendar, where I do use third-party calendar applications, I haven't convinced myself that that is a viable strategy for everything and that I won't be missing out on features. Like, I do not feel like I'm missing out on Apple Calendar features uh, by using Fantastical or Calendars 5, uh, both of which I use. I, I feel like those apps have more and continue to be better than Apple Calendars. But Apple Photos, they keep adding features to that, and I do want the features that they add, and I just feel a little bit better using the first-party one. And practically speaking, when I'm on my phone, uh, I'm using the Apple one anyway. I don't even know if it's possible to have third-party ones on it. It probably is, but 
I haven't really entered, if it is possible, I haven't really dived into that world. So I'm using Apple Photos on my phone. So it just, it's nicer to use Apple Photos everywhere. Oh, and the shared iCloud photo library, huge feature that I've wanted for, uh, you know, more than a decade finally came real excited about that. It has really changed how I've managed photos. Well, I'll tell you one thing, John, we love having you on the show because your opinions are thought out and uh, that is something all the listeners enjoy getting the benefit of the the experience you bring as a longtime Apple user and someone who thinks about this stuff a lot. We sure appreciate you coming in. And we will not be waiting 200 shows before we have you back, I promise. Um, but uh, where can people find you? Well, you can uh, go to my website, hypercritical.co. I could not get the .com. And now, if I could, honestly, if I could get the .com, I'd probably redirect the .com to the .co. Anyway, um, I don't post much there, but if you go to the About page, you will find links to all my stuff. Uh, I'm on Accidental Desk po- Tech Podcast with Marco Armand and Casey Liss that comes out every week. We talk about Apple and tech stuff. Uh, you can find me on Reconcilable Differences on Relay, a podcast I did with Merlin Mann, which I call my feelings podcast, where we talk about everything that's not <laughs> Apple and technology and stuff, although sometimes we talk about Apple and technology. Uh, you can hear me on a Robot or Not, which is a silly little podcast I do with Jason Snell over at The Incomparable. Uh, and then um, uh, my last name, Syracusa at Mastodon.social, if you want to see where I am on social media these days. I know everybody knows you for ATP, but I want to recommend Robot or Not. Every time I have a bad day and I just want a good laugh, the Robot or Not episodes are like 10 minutes at most, it seems. And uh, Jason seems to get like to your core essence with questions about asking whether something is a robot or not. And every time I laugh out loud, I I don't know if you're trying to make me laugh, but you you sure do every time. Yeah, I, I love that idea for the podcast. Just little tiny, short, bite-sized things. It's not it's not a big investment. They're like you know some of them are like two minutes long, and and they also have yeah. fun theme songs where people uh, send in their interpretations of our theme song. Jason does some uh, versions of the theme song. Uh, it's just a fun little thing, and it's nice to have something that's not like a two-hour podcast of a bunch of nerds talking about Apple stuff. Yeah. Well, either way, we are a group of nerds that talks about Apple stuff. You can find us over at relay.fm slash MPU. We want to thank our sponsors this week. That's our friends over at 1Password, Squarespace, and Tailscale. Uh, on more power users, which is the extended ad-free version of the show, John's going to be talking about his Mac plans. I can't wait to dig in on that. Otherwise, we'll see you next week, and thanks for listening.